Hi, it's Sophie Murphy here at the ACL National Conference. Um, I'm really lucky to have with me Brian Goodwin. Welcome. And Elizabeth Ross Hubble. So welcome as well. So we're going to be interviewing Brian and Elizabeth together. Um, Brian has done a keynote presentation today and Elizabeth will be doing one tomorrow morning. So we're really looking forward to hearing about that. But I'd love to get to know a little bit more about both of you um, and share that with everybody. So I'll start with you, Brian. Can you just give us a little bit of a background about your journey in education so far? Sure. So I started off as a high school teacher at a very, very small school in the Caribbean. Um, in fact, I think it was maybe 200 kids K through 12. So I taught um, uh, ninth grade English. I taught American literature. I taught uh, Caribbean history. I was like four pages ahead of the kids doing that one. Um, and I taught uh, AP world literature and stuff. So, and it was really kind of a baptism by fire in that case. Um, and then I, I found myself coaching uh, sports. And so um, all sports, uh, because again, a very small school. So one of the things, our school is so small, we weren't getting it in the local newspaper. So I started writing little newspaper columns to get our team in the paper. And then eventually that turned into a regular job. So I was moonlighting as a journalist. And then um, when I moved to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, after leaving the Caribbean, um, my wife was in Pennsylvania at the time. So uh, I became a full-time newspaper reporter, um, moonlighting then as a college professor, um, adjunct faculty. So and then eventually I became, um, I moved to McCrell. And so for 20 years now, my job has been really to kind of take a journalist's sensibilities about the research and say, in journalism, they always talk about what's the nut graph, what's the, what's the most important thing, why do I need to know this? Um, and looking for that in our research. And so I've had the privilege of working with folks like Elizabeth and others um, who have great content and being able to learn a whole lot from them. And I feel like um, even right now as a CEO at McCrell, uh, I've just got a great team behind me and I'm just, I'm fortunate to be able to share the work that we do. So Exciting. Welcome to Australia. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to Australia and to ACL and in Melbourne. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit about your journey so far? Sure. Thank you. Um, so started off as a Montessori teacher, first, second, and third graders, um, and really got into the didactic materials and following, you know, the following the child is one of the mantras of Montessori. And the timing was just right where I was in the classroom just as technology was really hitting the classroom. And so how, how do you uh, balance all the Montessori tenants with these, these new emerging technologies? And I'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow. Um, so I taught for uh, close to 10 years and then moved to McCrell, which is where I met Brian, and started working with our uh, classroom instruction that works, instructional strategies, and started developing uh, next iterations of that work. And then uh, I've been in higher ed now for three years, and we program for uh, professional development for higher ed professionals. Excellent. So you're both here um, presenting by yourselves independently, but you've published a number of works collaboratively with others and with each other. And we've, we spoke briefly about, um, what really excites me about this is that we spoke briefly about, I guess, prioritizing. And as you said, from that journalism background, how do you actually prioritize and pick what works? So how do you do that? Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we've looked at actually like the work of John Hattie. So we've been dialed into what's happening in Australia for quite some time now. Um, and we looked at, for example, in the 12 touchstones, what are the things that have like that hinge point effect that are really important that we should focus on? We've done the same thing for school factors. So we look at what are the most important things. In fact, it's called what matters most um, for school improvements. So it's, um, we, it is by looking at the research and seeing what things are, are jumping off the page of, of research journals to say these are really important to do. Um, 
Um, and that was really the idea of the 12 touchstones. We were seeing, all, at least across the U.S., a lot of these teacher frameworks, which are valid, they're good, but there's a ton of stuff, like dozens of items for teachers to um, attend to. And you think, well, how, how can you tell teachers, well, focus on these, you know, 72 things and you should be okay. So we wrote the 12 touchstones to say if we could, if we could winnow it down, and we honestly, we wish we could have had it down to like seven plus or minus two uh, touchstones, but the reality is we felt like 12 was probably getting to the grain size where we're capturing what's really important. So, yeah. Um, boy, so it's, um, I can flip a book over now. So, so we've we've arranged it this way, and this actually was influenced by John Hattie's work, where we've said teachers need to be demanding; they need to challenge kids, set high expectations. That's we know that's important. We've seen that for years, um, going way back to the Rosenthal experiments in the '60s, right? Um, where we know what the Pygmalion effect, all of that, and then we know also, and this is why we wanted to bring this in: um, how important it is for teachers to develop strong relationships with kids. Um, and support them. So you challenge and you support. The third thing is then, because we've done a lot of research on effective instructional strategies, we were able to identify what works. But in our work, and Elizabeth has done a lot of this too, when you work with teachers on that, the most important thing isn't knowing what works, it's knowing why it works. And so then we talk about the third area of the 12 touchstones, so there's like three column three imperatives, is being intentional, knowing why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so then in each, in each area we have like four key ideas that tie back to challenging kids, supporting them, and knowing why you're doing what you're doing, being intentional. So, yep. So I guess um, a lot of teachers, and we've, we've heard a lot about, I guess, the notion of compliance versus purpose. And so you've set out with these different areas and you've highlighted, you know, what are those 12 touchstones of good teaching? So how do you, what do you talk to teachers about to really um, think about, well, what, how do we actually make these purposeful? So they're not even going through so much as a checklist and as a, I have to do these because that's what Brian and Elizabeth are talking about and this is what the research is telling us or what, you know, what our district or our, our curriculum is telling us. But that notion of purpose, how do we, how do you, what do you say to teachers to really get them to understand how purposeful and intentional that they need to be? Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I'm going to talk about tomorrow is the fact that you know when you first become a teacher, your first year in classroom, first year in the classroom, you have all this theory. You have almost nothing but theory, um, not as much experience, and eventually you start getting challenged with that theory. You start realizing that wow, this thing that was supposed to work that you know my professor told me would work isn't working in this case. What do I do? How do I tweak it so that it works for this particular student? And that's where that um, you know, the art of teaching, if you will, or that experience that we're talking talking about we're talking about evidence and experience kicks in um one of the conversations we had that uh, eventually became the second edition of classroom instruction that works was as you said teachers were going through all the strategies in the list that they had been originally um uh, published and they were listed in order of impact on effect size and they were ticking off the boxes did i do that strategy did i do that one they weren't thinking very uh, very much about, and this is our fault because we didn't do a, a framework, they weren't really thinking about what's the purpose of the strategy and when do I use it? And when is it appropriate to use it? So in the second edition, we created a framework. So it was a really clear guideline of when you're in this section of your lesson, these strategies are going to be most effective. Um, you know, these others are going to be most effective when you're in a, a higher order thinking activity or something like that. So, yeah. I know when I'm working with teachers, they, they, 
it's it is about confidence as well. They want to know, and so they can read about it, but they want to know. So I actually want to follow up on that point that you talk about. Um, do, what are teachers saying to you? Because teachers will often say to me, well, can, Sophie, can you demonstrate that or can you show me? They're actually doing that themselves and they're doing a terrific job at that. But often it's that affirmation and, and confidence building that, hey, I'm actually doing a great job here. So what do you see with the teachers that you work with in really instilling that confidence that they already have and perhaps the these touchstones are actually allowing them to say, hey, I'm, I'm actually doing this or the notion of tweaking, I like that because they're doing it but it's just these tiny tweaks that actually, rather than the word change... Two thoughts come to mind on that. Um, one is the job of the leaders to create an environment where teachers can take risks and see what works and be experimental and not feel like they um, that they're gonna, there's going to be a punishment for trying something new. Yeah. And then the second part is creating a, an environment in your schools where you then have a platform and a venue for sharing what has worked. And I did, you know, I tried this new thing. This really worked well, but then I tried it with these, the student. It didn't work well. Here's why I think. And just that creating that space for that professional dialogue. Otherwise it happens by happenstance, but it's not a purposeful communication going on between teachers. Is that trust though? Do you think, is it, is it about relational trust? Is it about, um, how do we actually get leaders? And I might come to you, Brian, but, um, when we're developing capacity of our educational leaders, how do we, we want teachers to be able to explore, experiment, be able to say, hey, I'm doing a good job. And the notion of collaborative expertise and sharing, we want to see teachers doing that. But often teachers are scared because they don't know if they're doing the right thing. So how do we actually help leaders um, start to instill that trust within a school environment? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, we do point out that uh, there are times as a leader to be pretty directive and top down, but there's also it's important to be to know when to be empowering. And I think as as teachers are trying to develop more expert practices, as they're thinking about why am I doing these things, that's where as a leader you need you need to be empowering, and it's to let people know it's okay to make mistakes, as 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 Elizabeth was alluding to, um, and I think. Uh, we talk about a purposeful community. So it is, you know, this morning I was sharing, you start with your moral purpose and why are we doing this um, and build from that. And I think the other piece is, is um, as a leader, it's having that uh, positivity. I mean, that's one, that's one of the responsibilities we've identified that effective leaders employ um, and employing asset-based thinking. So strength-based thinking, right? That um, looking for what's going right and kind of affirming when things go right. Um, a phrase that I like to use is that it's okay to make mistakes, try to avoid errors, and an error is a repeated mistake. So when you make a mistake, learn from that. And that, I know that's hard because I think there is a lot of pressure on schools to feel like you're doing it right every time, but but we learn through our mistakes too. So I think it's okay for teachers to tell kids, I'm trying something new. We'll see how it goes. And if it doesn't work, I'll make it better next time. And kids will appreciate that too because we're human beings right so yeah so i've spoken to um a lot of the other people and a lot of the other keynotes that we've been chatting to about the notion of empathy and really seeing through the eyes of the learner and and leaders seeing through the eyes of the teacher what what are your thoughts on how empathy sits with all of the work that you've been doing too yeah well so this morning i talked about one of the best questions you can ask as a leader is what's most challenging about this for you and you're getting at, I want to understand what's happening for you um, and showing that, that curiosity, frankly, about um, uh, 
what's going on. If and if one of the things we've also helped leaders think about is sometimes people push back on change, and not to then get mad that they're not doing what you've asked them to do, but think about well, why are they pushing back? And usually, it's four pretty predict- predictable reasons. One is they they simply don't know what to do. It's not clear yet. Another, another one might be they don't understand the logic. So it means that you as a leader have skipped over why are we doing this and you haven't provided the why or you haven't provided the vision like why are things I talked this morning about showing how things will be, will be better on the other side so as we when we do all this difficult work let's let's paint the picture of what it's going to look like for our kids let's imagine um, students learning better and being more joyful in their learning and the other reason that people might push back is that you, we've just we've taken them out maybe out of their comfort zone or um, we've disrupted their norms so so help, help people understand if we're doing that we need to call out there is a new set of operating principles here or values or whatever you want to call them um, and so that's I think that's a way to help teachers understand we're going to learn and I made the point this morning too you can't ask kids to be curious if you're not asking teachers to be curious and you can't beat the curiosity of teachers and then be surprised that it's not happening for kids. So to say, hey, we should all be curious. We should all be picking up something and exploring it and using inquiry mm-hmm. in our own learning too. So, yeah. I'll just stick with that notion of curiosity while we're there. Um, you talked a lot about curiosity. You've, you've written about curiosity. Uh, teachers always want to know how they can be effective. It, it sits in our Australian curriculum and, and the notion of how do we actually bring curiosity into our curriculum, into our teaching, into our classroom. So is there a message or a key message that you can talk about curiosity? And I know that you've written so much about it and there's so much to say, but just in a couple of um, sentences or a couple of, you know, for a couple of minutes, can you talk us through the notion of curiosity and why it's so important in our classrooms? So we know that it's this very powerful driver of learning. Um, and when curiosity is present, kids will persist in learning. It's more powerful than even their IQ when they're, when they're dialed in and they're excited. Um, the other great thing about curiosity is, as I mentioned this morning, you don't have to teach it. Right? We are born curious. You just have to avoid squashing it. So um, like in a classroom? Yeah, so I think it looks like teachers understanding, for starters, why am I teaching this, right? And understanding why adults need to know this stuff, right? So then you can show kids the practical purpose of this. So I think if you don't have that clear, um, and I've given it, I've thought about when I used to teach literature, there's a, a book in American literature, Scarlet, The Scarlet Letter, it's about the Puritans. I, I really I couldn't wrap my head around why I was teaching it, and it showed. Um, and so I think it helps for teachers to step back and say, What's the purpose of this learning? And once you have that, then you can think about, now, how might I draw kids into this and make it interesting? And so we talked this morning about, there's different ways to do that, you know, um, creating a sense of mystery, right? Or um, cognitive conflict where things don't quite sound right, and now let's explore that more, um, or suspense. And um, it's really just assuming, uh, that's not, maybe, uh, you call it a lesson launch, but how do I get, how do I draw kids in, into the learning to spark that curiosity. And the other big thing that I talked about this morning is it's helping teachers ask better questions. And it's the questions that always keep curiosity alive and really becoming expert questioners and not feeling like we have to have all the answers, right? So, yeah. Excellent. I'll, I'll come to you, Elizabeth, about I've, you've done a lot of work in the area of dialogic um, work within uh, how, to, how to get students to be able to um, think and, and what they what teachers need to do. We talked about purpose as well. So how do we how do we purposefully 
create lessons or how do we put the the notion of our kids being able to, to, to speak effectively and to question effectively in our classrooms? Um, I'll go back to the, the two notions of creativity and empathy that you, that you talked about. And I think that an, this will answer this is um, the, the concept of diversity of students came up a little bit during our uh, panel. And when we talk about empathy, and driving curiosity that you have to really know your students and their background and their culture, um, what they're going to find familiar and important. So, for example, with the Scarlet Letter, there's likely something in the news now where you could go back and say, did you notice this? Did you notice how it was talked about on the news? Did you notice how this was portrayed? This is an age-old thing that has been happening for a long time. Let's go back and we'll see how it was, you know, how it was talked about in the 1600s, 1500s. So that idea of um, empathy of knowing your students and then having something that's really relatable to them to spark that curiosity. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Answer I, I think, though, that... Um, when we as researchers start to really get involved in this we have such a passion for it and 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 we're so immersed in great questioning and um, curiosity but teachers have so much to cover and they really want to they're inspired when they hear you guys speak and they come to conferences and they hear many of the keynotes and they go back and then they think gosh how do I do this effectively so um, Elizabeth I'll come back to you about for the teachers that are here and for the educational uh, leaders and for those in the system that really want to take back all of this great um, inspiration back into their schools and their classrooms, what are some of the first steps that they can take to really activate this learning in their schools and classrooms? Um, one project Brian and I are working on right now is doing a diagnostic of the biggest issues you're trying to solve in your classrooms, in your schools, or that you're facing. And then when you come to something like this, picking out two to three things that really resonated. And, and you know, if that matches up with the problem you're trying to solve, focus for a year or two just on those two things. Don't try to go through all the strategies. Don't try to implement all 12 touchstones. Focus on what's really important and where you're going to really get the most bang for your buck for those. Mm -hmm. Brian, do you want to add to that? I guess as a, a school leader, uh, again, leaving the conference, how do, how do they take back all of these ideas or what are some of the main ideas that you'd like to see the teachers and educational leaders take back? Yeah. So I would say this is don't go it alone. I mean, these are, um, if you're trying to think about how, to, how do we redesign learning so kids are curious, share that. I mean, do that together. Um, you know, we talked about how, it's, tr it's hard to change habits, and it's really easy to slide back into old habits, right? We've all done that, right? We've all said, I'm going to eat salads from now on, right? And we don't, right? So, But when we have somebody who can help us with that, it's important. So, And this is comp complex work, and, and I think it's also not backpedaling because it's difficult. Um, there'll be more planning up front to think about curiosity, but then the, what happens in the classroom will be worth it and more joyful. So... Um, but I think it's really just working together. And, and it's a weird thing that happens in a lot of schools where every teacher has to write their own lesson plans. And why do we do that? We should be sharing that together and um, getting the best ideas and saying, what's, Elizabeth, what's your best way of teaching this? Or give me a better way, like that example. I'll teach the Scarlet Letter that way now. You know, So don't go it alone. That'd be my advice. 
So planning, planning is obviously key. And so planning for this instructional practice, this clarity, this yeah. purpose is key because I guess to really understand the purpose of what we're teaching, we need to have those conversations with each other. Um, so can I ask you the importance of planning and how do we plan for curiosity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I shared some this morning as you think about um, – you want to make sure that there's a way to uh, get kids interested. So you want your hook in a way. Um, we also I talked this morning about learning objectives are certainly important. Success criteria are important. But why do we do that? We do that because we want kids to commit to learning. So you think about um, not just saying, kids, here's the objectives on the board and, and write them down, but I want you to own this. I want you to, to um, commit to going deeper with this. And then thinking about that next phase of learning, how do I get kids to focus on new knowledge? Um, kids only learn what they think about. So building in thinking time and then processing time too. And I think we skip. it's easy to skip over that. Um, I can certainly say for myself, uh, doing adult learning, these same principles apply. I tried to use them this morning, right? Um, and I know every time if I've skipped something, I can see just from people's eyes glazing over that I've that I haven't given them time to process. Um, and then finally, we think about the practice and rehearsal. And then I think and it was so it was affirmed this morning too with the student panel that Elizabeth was on. Um, kids want kids want opportunities to apply and make it real and make it make sense. And so if we leave off that extension application part of a unit plan. Um, they're never going to, it won't go deep. And I know that sometimes people feel like, I don't have time for all this. I've got so much curriculum to cover. <laughs> Here's the other reality. Um, studies have shown this, but teachers can probably affirm this too. Kids forget about half of everything they learn within like six weeks. So why not slow it down and let them go deeper and actually retain things? Because I've seen my own kids, right, studying for the final. Like, why do you have to study for the final? You should have learned this stuff. It shouldn't have to be recalled again. So that should, that should tell us something if kids have to go review at the end of the semester that we haven't really given them deep learning experiences. So. Thanks, Brian. I'm going to finish on chatting to you, Elizabeth, about you were uh, on the panel with three students today from Victoria, uh, which was great to have that notion of student voice and agency being heard. And what were some of the key messages that they talked about? Uh, and what were some of the things that resonated with you being on that panel with those students? Definitely. Um, one phrase I heard several times, I believe Bonnie was the first to mention it, but uh, the avenues for learning, and that's been something, it'll be a story included in tomorrow's mm-hmm. keynote, is when we only provide one avenue for learning, and students think there's only one way I can learn this, and there's only one way I can be successful. One, we're missing that hook, but two, we're missing an opportunity for them to start to assess how they learn best. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like from the three students we heard today, they've had some uh, experiences with finding out how they learn best. They've been given different avenues and be like, oh, wow, that really worked for me. This one was okay. This one wasn't that engaging. So that really jumped out. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you so much for chatting to uh, to all of us today and chatting to me. Um, and welcome to Australia. It's so great to have you here and sharing your expertise. So thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you.